Hello, this is Swami Janeshwar. This is a talk entitled Developing Determination for Enlightenment. It was presented at the Center for Non-Dualism on February 1st, 2009. I hope you enjoy it. Please visit the Center website at centerfornondualism.org and my personal website at swamij.com. We're supposed to talk about determination. I think that uh, one of the things about determination is that we can't take it too seriously. There is a paradox in all of this business of spiritual awakening or enlightenment there's a paradox. You have to do it. You have to have to do it with tremendous determination. I love to point out that while we, all of us, regardless of what traditions or backgrounds we come from, are familiar with this notion of surrender. I have to surrender to God or truth or divine or something. I have to surrender. But I love to point out, as a rhetorical question, when you read the biographies of Buddha and Christ and Krishna and Shankara and whoever you think of as great people, are you reading a biography about a wimp? Do you ever hear stories about how, you know, quiet and timid and sort of almost weak they were? because they were surrendering. I don't see those stories. I hear stories of very powerful people. I've seen it happen with my own teacher. I'm not a guru salesman, so I don't mean it in that spirit, where there's hundreds of us sitting in a room waiting for him to come in the because the door into the speaking room, big auditorium, was in the back. And so everybody's looking up front. So it's not like you're sitting or looking up front and you see the person come out the side door and then you get quiet. But it was happened over and over that as soon as he walked in the door, literally, instantly, everybody became quiet. And there's an energy, there's a presence, there's something that happens. And, it, and it's power. And it's a power that we really need to cultivate. But it's not an egotistical power. The word ego, remember this word ego is a word we use in our language and it came out of Latin. So it has lots of different meanings. But the way in which most of us, most of the time in our culture, use the term ego is different from the way the term ego is used in Eastern psychology. I'm not fond of East and West or yoga psychology. The word that is used is ahamkara. Aham means I am. Kara means maker or the potential for. So ahamkara is that wave of forceful, strong energy that sets the stage to be able to take on identities. Metaphor I use, two of them. One is of a Christmas tree and the other is of a house. So you can choose your metaphor. 
One is imagine that you two neighbors, they go down to the Christmas tree lot and they buy two really big Christmas trees that are essentially the same. They take them home, they put them in the front window of their house. One puts all sorts of snow and decorations and lights, and the other only has one string of lights and they just get kind of hung there. So we're standing out on the street looking in the window and we say, what a beautiful Christmas tree. And we look at the other one and we say, hmm, well, I guess that's nice, which really means that's an ugly Christmas tree. And if you want to use the metaphor, the house itself is a metaphor. Imagine these two houses are, are uh, built on the same floor plan by the same contractor at the same time. But one, they didn't get around to painting. The other one is painted nicely, has trees, has a garden, has nice grass. Everything's pretty. This one is just nothing like that. And we stand on the street and we look and we say, what an ugly house that is. And this one we say, what a lovely house that is. What are we describing? The house or the ornaments? Are we describing the trees or are we describing the ornaments? So one use of the word ego is actually referring to the ornaments. When we say a person is egotistical, we're talking about their ornaments. The way in yoga psychology that this word ahamkara is used, that we translate as ego, is referring to the tree or is referring to the house. So the idea is not that we need to kill the ego. Sometimes you hear this said in spiritual life. If you're going to kill off anything at all, kill off the bad habits, okay, fine, and kill sounds a little violent, but you know, transform them, learn to let them go. Deal with the ornaments. We need to choose what ornaments we are going to manifest as a personality in relationships with other people, in our, in our family, in, in, in our work, in our community. We need to be mindful of that and choose that. But accidentally, accidentally, we can, in effect, kill off the ego. We can kill the tree. We can tear down the house. And that's, that's not the idea. You want a good house. And you want your tree to be strong. None of these great people were wimps. But they didn't have many, if any at all, false identities that were ornaments, saying, look at me, look at me, look how cool I am, I'm a great teacher, I have all these followers and this and that. Did they do that? No. <laughs> Why did people follow them? Because they saw that other power. And in the language, the way that we're talking about this, we understand, we all know that it was, we may say it differently, but we may know that it was the power of Shakti or divine or God or however we individually would hold that. But it was not the power of the false identities. And we need to cultivate that. Does that make sense? It is so very easy to have that power get crushed in daily life. It is so easy to forget that power and end up complaining that says, my meditations are not quiet. My mind is this and that. It's noisy, noisy, noisy. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I'm lost. Last night we were talking about five minutes, about a period of five minutes. What if for five minutes you're sitting quietly? And in that five minutes, I don't care whether you call it meditation or contemplation or prayer time, I don't care what you call it, 
But in that five minutes, you're very, very still. Your body's not moving. Your breath is serene. Your mind is calm. Your focus is inside. You're actually succeeding. Whatever succeeding means for that five minutes. And then the chaos of life kicks in. All the stuff starts to happen again. And then the next day, you say, Oh, I'm a nervous wreck. I'm this and that. And all these things are going on. My question is this. Which one in your self-talk to yourself will you say is more close to who I am? The noisy part or the five minutes? And it's an important question. The thing I'm suggesting is that you demand of yourself, whoever yourself is, that says, no, I will not forget that who I am is much closer to that five minutes than the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of the day in which there's stuff going on. And if we don't do that, we end up with all this self-talk that's not useful, and that's what grows. And before long, you're saying, you know, I had these five wonderful minutes six months ago. I think I need another vacation. That five minutes becomes the anomaly, the exception. And that's inaccurate. In the notion of exceptions and rules, not meaning rules as such, that's the rule. The five minutes is the one that counts. We can come together and do something like this or some other form. It's one of the reasons we come together and hang out on Sundays. We, we can read an inspiring book or poetry. Something outside a person speaking can have that effect. True? But ultimately, the only effect that's going to count is the one that, do your, that you do yourself. And in saying that, I'm not ignoring grace that comes. But grace comes most fully when we've put in all the effort that we as an ego can put in. And then the deeper, subtler part of ourselves or truth or reality or the, the wave, the ocean of consciousness or however we would individually hold it, then it comes and carries us the rest of the way. You've heard this phrase, when, the when, the, when a student is ready, a teacher will come. Did you ever reflect on when a student is ready, then a teacher will come, or the teacher, if you prefer it that way. What are you supposed to do in the getting ready phase? You hear, you hear it in there? We can sit and say, but help hasn't come, but help hasn't come, because help hasn't come. And I'm not saying this to be insulting, say you're not ready. I don't, I don't mean it in, in that kind of negative way. But it means a lot of this stuff we have to do, we have to do it on our own. It doesn't mean grace or help is not there silently in the background working. I'm not saying that. But we have to have our own conviction. It's a requirement. It's an absolute necessity. Even if you are failing, even if you're saying, I know I want to meditate every day, I know I want to read this book, I know I want to do that thing, and I just don't find the time to do it, I'm not doing it. What I'm saying is even when you are doing what we would call failing, instead of beating up on yourself, you live in the memory of the five minutes. That's who I am. 
At least it's the doorway. It's closer to who I am than what's going on with me. Buddha came along. Some say that Buddha reinvented things and started over. That's one opinion. Another opinion said that Buddha came along and he restated what had already been stated for a very long time. I am in that latter camp and I tremendously admire the grand beauty and simplicity of the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path because he says all this complexity, he says it very neatly and very succinctly. And a short version of the Four Noble Truths is there's a problem, it has a cause, it has a solution, and here it is. That's the short version of the Four Noble Truths. What does the problem have to do with? It has to do with desire. And it doesn't mean we're supposed to be boring people. It's those deep driving things that keep us wanting to do all those things and all our ignorance and getting off track. And so what's the solution? Let them go. Well, how do you do it? Then he gives eight recommendations. And one of them, the sixth one, is what's called right effort. Let me read this to you. What now is right effort? There are four great efforts. This is supposedly what Buddha himself says. Uh, four. One is the effort to avoid. Two is the effort to overcome. Three is the effort to develop. And four is the effort to maintain. Now, what is the effort to avoid? There, the disciple incites his mind to avoid the arising of evil, demeritorious things that have not yet arisen. He strives, puts forth his energy, strains his mind, and struggles. Thus, when he perceives a form with the eye, a sound with the ear, an odor with the nose, a taste with the tongue, a contact with the body, or an object with the mind, he neither adheres to the whole nor to its part. And he strives to ward off that through which evil and demetorious things, greed and sorrow, would arise. If he remained with unguarded senses, he watches over his senses, restrains his senses. Possessed of this noble control over the senses, he experiences inwardly a feeling of joy into which no evil thing can enter. This is called the effort to avoid. What now is the effort to overcome? There the disciple incites his mind to overcome the evil, demeritorious things that have already arisen, and he strives, put forth his energy, strains his mind, and struggles. He does not retain any thought of sensual lust, ill will, or grief, or any other and demeritorious states that will have arisen. He abandons them, dispels them, destroys them, causes them to disappear. What now is the effort to develop? There the disciple incites his will to arouse meritorious conditions that have not yet arisen. Now he's bringing forth the positive. And he strives, puts forth his energy, strains his mind, and struggles. Thus he develops the elements of enlightenment, bent on solitude, on detachment, on extinction, and ending in deliverance. Namely, attentiveness, investigation of the law, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. This is called the effort to develop. What now is the effort to maintain? There the disciple incites his will to maintain the meritorious conditions that have already arisen, to maintain them. 
and not to let them disappear, but to bring them to growth, to maturity, and to the full perfection of development. And he strives, puts forth his energy, strains his mind, and struggles. Thus, for example, he keeps firmly in his mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. As the mental image of a skeleton, of a corpse infested by worms, of a corpse blue-black in color, of a festering corpse, of a corpse riddled with holes, of a corpse swollen up. This is called effort to maintain. Sounds pretty grotesque, doesn't it? Do you hear the theme in there? What do you do with the negative? It's a little bit like swimming. When you swim in the water, one hand goes forward and pulls something to you, and the other hand pushes something away behind you. There's two parts to the process. You draw towards you what is meritorious, using those words, and what do you set aside? That which is not meritorious. And ask yourself, are you actually doing that? When stuff comes into your mind and your life that's not useful, do you let it swallow you up and a hundred times a day, a thousand times a day, you keep restating that in your mind field? I'm not talking about denial and suppression and repression in the psychological sense. That's not what it's about. If there's issues like that, talk to a therapist. Do these things. If there's seven days in a week and 24 hours a day and a couple hours a week in counseling or therapy or group dynamics of one kind or another is useful, great. But what do you do the rest of the time? No mind, no mind, no, no, no. I will not let you eat me up. And what do you put into place? I don't care if it's a mantra or a prayer or a thought of one of the faces of God, or it's a thought of the absolute reality, the, the ocean that is one, or simply the face of someone you love. Put something there and demand of your mind, mind, this is what we're going to focus on. What would you do as a parent of a small child? Some of you have been there. What do you do? You teach your two-year-old, your five-year-old, your eight-year-old, Oh, yes, please cultivate all those negative things that's going on in your mind. Do you teach the children, no, ignore and suppress and suppress and deny and pretend? No. Be wise. Or do we ignore the children and not even help them know that? We're children too. We need to be mindful. In Yoga Sutras, in Sutra 20 of the first chapter, says... People follow, you follow a five-fold systematic path of one, faith, faithful certainty in the path, two, directing energy towards the practice, three, repeated memory of the path in the process of stilling the mind, four, training in deep concentration, and five, the pursuit of real knowledge by which the higher samadhi is attained. The word here is virya. Virya is used in Yoga Sutras. Buddhism uses the same word in some of his writing on virya. Virya is the positive energy of ego that is the support for faith of going in the right direction. This energy of virya puts the power behind, puts the power behind your sense of knowing what to do. When you are strongly acting on what you know to be your correct path, that is virya. When you feel weak or uncertain and are taking little action, that is lack of virya. Virya is that conviction that says, I can do it, I will do it, and I have to do it. You may have heard of Kundalini or Kundalini Shakti. 
Many of us say, I want my kundalini awakened, the spiritual energy. I want it to awaken and rise and I'll see the light of a thousand suns. As Saul saw when he became Paul. But there's a form of kundalini shakti that comes first and needs to be cultivated. And that is sankalpa shakti. The first manifestation of shakti, of that energy that we want to come, is sankalpa, and it means determination. So if we're waiting for God or truth or divine and we're feeling frustrated, I want that to come, that's a good thing, wanting it to come. But which one of those energies do we want to come first? If you were to say it in the form of prayer, we've all heard this many times, Lord, give me strength. If you're using dualistic religion, God, as a path to non-dualism, this works. It's a valid approach. It's an appeal that says, give me determination. Do you hear how important it is? You have to do it. You have to demand it. You have to demand. It's my right. There's a word called tatiksha that's in Vedanta. They, uh, it's the prerequisites to be able to follow the path of jhana yoga. And the, there are four general means. One is discrimination. Two is non-attachment. Uh, three is six virtues. And four is longing or mumokshutva. It's the longing for truth. You want to cultivate the longing. But in those six virtues, one of them is called tatiksha or forbearance. Forbearance and tolerance of external situation allow one to be free from the onslaught of the sensory stimuli and pressures from others to participate in action, speech, or thoughts that one knows to be going in a not useful direction. Tetiksha, it's forbearance. The world is not going to stop its messages. Is it? And so we must cultivate this thing that says, they're going to do what they're going to do. I'm going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. Sound like a good idea? I want to read uh, something here you from, from a text called the Viveka Chudamani. It's a text that is on discernment. It was written about 1,200 years ago. If I can find this little piece easily. Oh, right there where I put the tab. That was easy. Different take on the same thing. Tatiksha forbearance is that faculty of the mind which it maintains when intellectually it is governed by a tempo and a conviction which is complete and self-ordained, divine and noble. When the intellect is fully convinced of its accepted values of life, of the sacredness of its goal, thereafter, in trying to gain it, the mind smilingly faces all difficulties and obstacles. This capacity of the mind to accommodate cheerfully all its vicissitudes and patiently ignore any object, obstacles that might come its way is tatiksha. Listen to that. To patiently ignore any obstacles. Who cares? And to accommodate cheerfully all of the vicissitudes. There's a phrase I like to use to, to make this simple. 
to simply call soft determination and hard determination. Soft determination and hard determination. Hard determination is aggressive, pushing to succeed. It is unforgiving and disrespectful of others. It is manipulative, deceitful, with the ends justifying the means. I call that hard determination. Sometimes we can think accidentally that when we hear a word determination, that that's what's being talked about. Like the motivational speakers that says, here's how you make your next million dollars at the expense of your community and others. Our news is filled with people with this kind of hard determination. Is it not? Particularly of late, all the stories in the court things, these people had determination. They were going to succeed. They were going to run their companies. They were going to make their fortunes, and they did it. It's what I call hard determination. One of the traps is we can see that and say, I don't want to be like that, and we end up throwing away determination. And that's not a good idea. So there's what I call soft determination. It is patient, yet gently persistent. It is unwavering, yet gentle. It is resolute, yet loving. That's the determination we want. Here's another little reading on the sattvas, rajas, and tamas. This morning we were talking about the three gunas a little bit, the three primal elements. And I want to read this to you so that I can then make a point <coughs> about sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic determination. And if I tried to make those points without giving you some idea more about what they are, it wouldn't make so much sense. So this is just a reading out of some passages. Maya, or illusion, can be destroyed by the realization of the pure Brahman, the absolute reality, the one without a second, just as the mistaken idea of a snake is removed by the discrimination of the rope. It's a classic explanation that sometimes in the dim light of the evening you see a rope and you say, oh, I see a snake. And you get closer and you realize, well, it's not was not a snake, it was a rope. So there's this discernment process where we're trying to awaken to our true nature. And we come to see that what we thought was one thing was something else. Rajas has as its projecting power, which is of the nature of an activity, and from which this primeval flow of activity has emanated. From this also, mental modifications, such as attachment and grief, are continually produced. Rajas is activity, it's action. Lust, anger, avarice, arrogance, spite, egoism, envy, jealousy, etc. These are the dire attributes of rajas from which the worldly tendency of man is produced. Therefore, rajas is the cause of bondage. And as an aside, if you're a couch potato and you're not doing anything, what you need is a little more rajas. So all of these gunas is not just all bad. You need to get off the couch and do something, so you need more rajas. But this is pointing out the downside of them. Avrati, or the veiling power, is the power of tamas, which makes things appear other than what they are. It is this that causes man's repeated transmigrations and starts the action of projecting power. Even wise and learned men and men and women who are clever and adept in the vision of exceedingly subtle atman or the soul are overpowered by this power of tamas and do not understand the atman, even though clearly explained in various ways. What is simply superimposed by delusion they consider as true and attach themselves to its effect. Alas, how powerful is the great 
shakti or potency of this dreadful tamas. And again, tamas is stability. There's a positive side to it. I'm just wanting to say that it's all not all negative. So if you need stability in your life, you need tamas. Uh, but this is the negative side. Absence of right judgment or contrary judgment, want of definite belief and doubt, these certainly never desert one who has any connection with this veiling power. And then the projecting power gives ceaseless trouble. Ignorance, lassitude, dullness, sleep, inadvertence, stupidity, etc. are attributes of Thomas. One tied to these does not comprehend anything but remains like one asleep or like a stone or a rock. Pure sattva is the other one. Pure sattva is clear like water, yet in conjunction with rajas and tamas, it makes for transmigration or enlightenment. The reality of Atman becomes reflected in sattva. The reality of the absolute reality reflects in this sattva. One of the metaphors that's used is like an image that reflects on a mirror. The Im- try to find the image on a mirror. You see, you can't find it. It's there, but it's not there. Is what they're alluding to. The traits of mixed sattva are an utter absence of pride, etc., and the practices such as faith, devotion, yearning for liberation or enlightenment, the divine tendencies, and turning away from the unreal. The traits of pure sattva are cheerfulness, the realization of one's own self, supreme peace, contentment, bliss, and steady devotion by which the aspirant enjoys bliss everlasting. This undifferentiated, spoken of as the compound of the three gunas, is the causal body of the soul. Profound sleep is its special state in which the functions of mind and all its organs are suspended. There's a feel of those three terms. So when we look at these three yogic terms of way of being, we can see that that determination can be looked at like this. Tamasic determination is that determination which is heavy, forceful, aggressive, and selfish. Rajasic determination is racing, frenzied, fiery, trampling on others. And sattvic determination is clear, strong, steady, and serving. There's this little thing here I want to read from David Frawley. Will is developed by the power of attention. Will is developed by the power of attention. It can only be gained to the extent that we do not give ourselves over to entertainment and self-indulgence. Desire fragments the will and scatters it into the outer world. True will relinquishes desire, recognizing that desire arises from external compulsion rather than from an internal creativity. Without will, we cannot go far on the spiritual path. Yet will is not gained by conflict or struggle, only through patience and perseverance. Will comes through presence, not through the desire to achieve, which, positing a result, fragments our energy into time. True will is surrendering into what is, merging into the energy of the existence. This is the greatest achievement, but it also requires the greatest sacrifice, the surrender of personal seeking. Swami Vivekananda wrote a hundred years ago, Bondage is of the mind and freedom is also of the mind. A man is free if he constantly thinks, I am free. I am a free soul. How can I be bound whether I live in the world or in the forest? I am a child of God, the King of kings. Who can bind me? If bitten by a snake, a man 
may get rid of its venom by saying emphatically, there is no poison in me. In the same way, by repeating with grit and determination, I am not bound, I am free. One really becomes so. One really becomes free. Hear the story? Keep saying it. Same thing, over and over. One of our presidents, Calvin Coolidge, said, Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful people with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. And here's a piece that uh, that I wrote uh, that's on an article on my website uh, that is called Shortcut to Self-Realization or Enlightenment. While it is true that there are many paths up the spiritual mountain to self-realization, the thing they all have in common is that one must climb, and the direction to climb is up, not across. There really is a shortcut to self-realization or enlightenment, and that is to follow the direct route inward through the levels and layers to the center of consciousness. To say that there is a shortcut does not mean that there is one organization, institution, teacher, tradition, or method that is the single way to enlightenment. Rather, it is the way in which one travels the journey and the commitment to not stop at some pleasant plateau that has a nice view. It is the dedication, determination, sankalpa shakti, to systematically walk in a steady, straight line into and through all of the levels of our being, which are nothing but false identities, covering over or clouding over our true self, like lampshades over the light. It doesn't mean the straight line is always straight. There are bumps and jolts, twists and turns, but the conviction is steady and straight. This shortcut is the path that is recommended by the sages of the Himalayas for those who are ready to know themselves on all levels. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Om Peace, Peace, Peace.